Dr. G. Samantha Rosenthal is Associate Professor of History and Coordinator of the Public History Concentration at Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. She is the author of two books, Living Queer History, Remembrance and Belonging in a Southern City, and Beyond Hawaii, Native Labor in the Pacific World. They are co-founder of the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ History Project, a nationally recognized queer public history initiative. Her work has received awards and recognition from the National Council on Public History, the Oral History Association, the Committee on LGBT History, the American Society for Environmental History, and the Working Class Studies Association. Dr. Samantha G. Rosenthal, welcome to the Creative Process LGBTQ Plus Stories and One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. We've all been so interested to read Living Queer History. I believe you've selected a passage to just give us a brief introduction. Yes, this is a brief passage from the second chapter that I feel really captures what I mean by living queer history. I believe that queer history is a living practice and that it lives on in spaces of remembrance and belonging. When I walk Roanoke's paved streets and dirt alleyways today, I encounter the remnants, some might even say the queer ghosts, of an almost forgotten past. The work of queer public history is to make and remake these spaces of queer historical consciousness, to foster a renewed sense of togetherness and queer belonging around a shared understanding of the past. Our engagement with local histories also opens up new worlds of possibility for our collective future, for who we might become and how we might live together in this city as queer and trans people. For this work is not just about historical research, interpretation and preservation. It's also about surviving the current moment and organizing for our well-being. I helped to found this project because I had a personal wish and a personal need to fulfill. I wanted to find my people, a queer and trans community in Southwest Virginia. I thought I could use queer public history as a way to find other queer people, make new friends and build community. I didn't realize that I would also fall in love with another project leader. In the years since our founding in 2015, we've established a new community here. We're friends, some of us are lovers, we're collaborators, sometimes across great differences and disparities of age, race, class, gender, and sexuality. In rallying people around the celebration of queer history, we make space for LGBTQ people in the present. In our bar crawl, which is an event that we've done, we literally took up city space and reclaimed historically queer spaces in the city for one night for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. By making space for LGBTQ history, we seek not just to rescue the past, but to create present and future spaces for our survival. We make space for queer people just to be. This is what I believe queer public history can do, not just the commemoration and memorialization of queer pasts, but the reclamation of historically queer spaces and ways of being in space together. I want us to be our beautiful selves. I want us to love our gayborhood. I want us to gallivant around downtown in heels and sequins if that's what you wanna do. I do not want us to fall victim to displacement, assimilation, or erasure. Well, I think that gives a beautiful introduction. And so really, you know, so one question that is sometimes asked is, how did you change in the writing of the book? But you literally transitioned, as well as you mentioned, you fell in love. Right. And so change in, in many ways. And we should say the full title, Living Queer History, Remembrance and Belonging in a Southern City, because that's very important, as you say. So you know, tell us about those various transformations and your journey. Sure. 
Yeah, so I moved to Roanoke, which is a small city in Southwest Virginia in Appalachia in the U.S. South. And I moved there in 2015 from Brooklyn. I was living a very metropolitan life in New York City as a cisgender straight man. I was married. I was fully living a heterosexual life. And uh, all of that kind of fell apart right before I left New York. My marriage fell apart. And I came out as queer initially, as a, as a queer man. And then I took a job down here. And I'd never lived in the South before. And I'd never lived in Appalachia. And I didn't know what to expect as a newly out queer person. Would this be a safe place for me to be myself? Would it be a place where I could explore my gender and sexuality? What would the dating outlook look like? You know, these are all questions I had moving from a, a huge global city to a small, really small city in a kind of forgotten part of the country. And once I got here, I started to meet amazing elders, queer elders and transgender elders who started to tell me stories about their life here. And in the course of doing interviews with older trans women, there was one interview I read about in the intro, listening to an older trans woman's story. We're still friends today, but this was probably five or six years ago. And she's probably in her 70s now. And she's talking about growing up, her childhood experiences, how she realized she wasn't a boy. And I started crying and I didn't even know why, but I just lost it. And in retrospect, I started to think more about my own life and realized that her story is mine. You know, I was hearing these words from trans women who I had never, I never really spent a lot of time around transgender people. And as I heard their histories and life stories, things started to click in my head about my 30 some years on this planet. And I realized, wow, I think this is my story too. So in writing the book, it was an interesting process because initially I started to, to do this community-based queer history work as a man. And over the course of the project, I became a, a woman and a lesbian. And so the way that I engage with the LGBTQ histories has changed a lot because I've actually moved around in those letters, you know? So I try to be really transparent in the book about what this shows us about the ways that queer history has a synergy with our own lives and our sense of self and our sense of identity and our sense of place. Yes, really. And it's interesting for one to go through, well, any transformation in the writing of a book, but literally your your perspective is changing, evolving. I mean, it's being informed by so many different identities. And so it's interesting that when you speak to elders, how did that make you reflect on, you know, your experiences? I mean, the sense of acceptance even in the last decade has been huge whereas a few decades ago, you know, the invisibility, right. the silence. Yeah, I think the value of the elder stories is to show that this is not something new, right? You talk to somebody who's in their 70s or 80s, even some people we've interviewed, and we've interviewed people in their 20s and 30s too. But when we talk to elders, we realize that there are trans histories and queer histories, lesbian histories, gay histories, that even just in one living person's life, go back to the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. So it's been an amazing process to uh, collect those stories, see how they map against the archival history we have. That's the stuff that's been written down, which sometimes the, the stories align. Sometimes we hear from people something completely surprising that, we, that was never written down. Um, uh, so, and then we do programs with youth, with young LGBTQ people, and I find it really amazing to see the way that young LGBTQ people here in Appalachia receive the words of these elders in these stories. It's a real surprise moment of, oh, wow, you know, I'm, for a young kid, they might be struggling in school, struggling with their family, struggling with acceptance wondering whether they can truly be themselves here or will they have to move to a bigger city somewhere else. And the stories of the elders show us that this is a place that has long been queer and has long been trans. And, um, and there, 
And I mean, the final point I think is that I try to get across in the book is that by doing the history, that is one person with the microphone, the other person talking, we're actually creating multi-generational bonds. We're creating new kinds of community across generations between young people and old people. And that community too is extremely helpful for young LGBTQ people because it means connecting with mentors, connecting with elders, and knowing that there is uh, there are people out there that are gonna catch you when you jump and take a leap of faith in your own uh, in your own journey. That's really amazing to hear about as a young person myself. In your book, you talked a lot about queer space and the relationship of space and body. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about queer space and what it means to you. What do you think makes a space queer? Is it the people, the things that happen in the space, feelings of safety that you talk about? That's a great question. And I think it varies a lot based on who we talk to about it. You know, when I, as a historian, as like a trained historian, one of the things I say in the intro to the book is that a lot of the efforts at historic preservation, preserving heritage, often focuses on what I call place rather than space. Place being the kind of the veneer, the facade. It is the facade of a building. It is the historical marker or plaque or the rainbow crosswalk or something that it tells us that there's stories there and that's really important. But the rainbow crosswalk doesn't actually provide space for people to gather. Space being like, it's not just the veneer, but it's the it's the area in which we can put our bodies into it. And I think that one of the dangers with just putting up plaques and rainbow flags to acknowledge queer history is that it doesn't deal with the tricky issues about where queer people can gather and what places feel safe and whether we have the right to hold on to spaces that used to be so essential to local queer communities, the gay bar that shuttered its door, the, um, the community center that maybe has been gentrified into apartments or something like that. The whole neighborhoods, I write about gay neighborhoods a lot, and those are rapidly changing as they, in most places, they're becoming less gay. So the issue of space is really important because I think that LGBTQ people, especially in a Southern city like the one I live in, we still need those spaces. You know, the internet is not enough to provide us with the kind of community and spaces of belonging that we need. We want places we can gather and share a meal and make eyes at people across the room and date and love. And um, in the book, I read about places where people had sex too, which have also disappeared, which is interesting. So I think that space is really important. And one of the things we try to do in this project is to wonder how can we use queer history as a catalyst to actually claim space, to put our bodies into space. So I briefly mentioned the bar crawl in that passage I read. You know, that was an event where we gather on an evening once a year. Now, the first time we had 25 people when we did this. And we went from site to site to site of what used to be all the gay bars and dance clubs in Roanoke that have all disappeared. And we would go, and today maybe it's a straight bar, or one of them is a church, one of them is an apartment building. And we endeavored to go and put our bodies in that space to read out the oral histories of people's memories of that space and reanimate it with our bodies and claim it a space with our bodies. And we've done this in other ways with recreating historical gay events here in Roanoke. So we recreated a lot of athletic events here especially for the lesbian community here. There were a lot of athletic gatherings that were key spaces of belonging for queer women. And we've gone back to the same field, the same park, the same bowling alley um, to bring new, bring young people together now to put our bodies again in that space and say like, what would it look like to make new lesbian spaces, to make new transgender spaces here that we're not inventing out of thin air, but we're actually building on a tradition that the previous generations had carved those spaces for us. We're fighting back to um, keep the, the meaning and the accessibility of those spaces for our community. So that's kind of what I mean by space. 
Can you talk a bit about the process of consolidating your interviews and forming kind of an argument in your book through talking to people through your interviews? Yeah, so our project since 2015 has conducted, we're doing something right now, uh, and we're going to be at about 52 um, hour-long oral histories that we've done since then. The narrators reach in age from their 20s to their 80s, and we've made a special effort to focus on Black LGBTQ voices here, because Roanoke City is one-third Black, and that's a population that's largely been left out previously of LGBT narratives. And we focus on trans and non-binary people, and we focused specifically on women also. And um, so we've done, well, we will have done 52 interviews once these ones are completed that are going on right now. They're mostly done by students who I train. A couple times we've trained people in the community to do special interviews. We did that with the Black LGBTQ interviews where we, we got money to pay young Black queer women to train as oral historians and do the interviews with elders, with Black elders. And for the book, that's a great question about how do I synthesize across all of these disparate interviews and try to understand what the storylines are. I think I used maybe about 30 of the interviews in the book. And I lean really heavily into a, a couple because I wanted to share those human stories also. But it's an interesting process because that is what historians do is they synthesize information and try to tell a coherent and factual narrative about what happened. But a lot of my book is meant to challenge the idea that there is one narrative about what happened. So what I tried to do with the oral histories is to Think about where are the moments where people are saying something that really challenges us in the way we think about queer history and memory. Just to give an example for this, my chapter on transgender histories relies predominantly on these three interviews that we did with Black trans former sex workers. So these are folks who are multiply marginalized and very precarious in Roanoke with dealing with policing, economically precarious and also really shut out of the LGBTQ community and spaces at that time in the 70s, 80s, and 90s because they were Black, because they were trans, because they were sex workers. With those interviews, you know, it's a challenge because for all three of them, they don't necessarily come out and say what their relationship is to the larger LGBTQ community. One of them, in fact, identifies today as like formerly LGBT. None of them use the term trans for themselves. One of them brings it up and says, I wish I was that, you know, and I want to say you are. <laughs> but they come from a generation and I think a position in society where they don't feel like that's a label that is theirs. And so to write about their stories, I have to make a lot of careful footwork, kind of thinking about how do I, how do I frame these stories into a larger narrative? And what I end up doing is actually framing them as kind of the mothers of our trans community here, because they were really groundbreaking in visibility and claiming space and fighting back against laws and the police and against the city to claim space. And so it's an interesting counter narrative I've come up with to what, if you asked trans people, people who identify as transgender here and asked them about the history they point to early gatherings of white middle-class trans women. You know, so that's an example of using oral histories to try to reframe, shift the narrative, not to suggest I'm right or anyone else is right, but to challenge us to rethink the ways that we conceptualize LGBT history. Those experiences, you say, have always been there, but you have to respect that where people are in terms of in their relationship to uh, their culture. It's interesting we're talking about like in recent decades, there's been this greater acceptance. And even, you know, in popular culture, there's these narratives. As you say, I love to you say there's not just one narrative. What is your response or your feelings about some of those uh, narratives that are in popular culture or television and film? And, you know, how, how do you feel that maybe there could be more nuance or how are there examples where you thought, well, that was really just spot on? Mm. Yeah, I love consuming LGBTQ media, television, film, radio, podcast, books. I, I consume it all. And, and a lot of it's amazing. It's really great. 
I think you know, one of the points I make in the book about this is that as much as I love those national narratives, the meta narratives about what, what happened, and they often focus on the Stonewall uprising in New York City, or maybe San Francisco, things that happened in big cities. Those stories are true and have merit and are inspirational to people. But as I say in the book, it's kind of interesting because I say this in talking about the concept of public memory. And there were many public memories in Reno because when you talk to a lot of the elders about what happened in LGBTQ history, they have maybe uh, more specific pinpoints having lived through stuff than what it's young people say when I ask them today. When I talk to high schoolers or college students, they'll say Stonewall, you know, they always go back to Stonewall. And in the book, I raised the question of, well, what does that mean for the young trans kid growing up in rural Appalachia to think they know that LGBTQ history takes place in places like New York and it takes place in San Francisco, but that it hasn't happened here. And so that, you know, I think my main critique of some of the popular narratives is just that they tend to be very metropolitan, very urban, very coastal. And it's very rare to see rural LGBTQ stories it's rare to see the stories of people here in the South, in Appalachia being told. So what I argue in the book is that, you know, we have that national narrative, but I wanna see every local region in this country and around the world have their own queer history projects that they do. Because I really believe that every small town and city has an LGBTQ history that should be told, it should be preserved, it should be told, but not just for the sake of documentation, but because it actually will reshape the way people think about where they live. It will reshape how people where I live in Roanoke, Virginia, how we think about place, how we think about belonging, knowing that we live in a community that has long been queer. You know, for me, it's come back, coming back to me as someone who transitioned my gender here, and loves Roanoke and lives here as an openly queer and trans person and loves my community here. The history is key for me for that, to know that I can stay here, to know that I belong, to know that I have a place. The history gives me that sense of, of meaning. And so it is interesting because what you're pointing to is the fact that there is a long you know, rural history that's related to the trans identity. And I know that on the other hand, uh, as you're a public historian, you're also kind of environmental historian in your right. previous book, Beyond Hawaii, you're telling indigenous stories. And so as we know, many indigenous cultures had this, you know, some call it the two-spirit uh, or have another word for it. And it, there was an long-standing indigenous acceptance of trans identities and yeah. that was you know rooted in in the rural in the indigenous society so it's not just a metropolitan one that's true yeah yeah that's absolutely true and we see that here you know even in the region where i live that you know native american people indigenous peoples who still live here and who lived here long before other people came have their own gender systems for sure. And that's something I teach when I teach classes about gender. We're always kind of challenging the binary of man and woman, but we don't have to look just to kind of Western contemporary trans identity as a challenge to the male female binary. Cause yeah, there's deep, deep historical cultural models of third and genders, fourth genders, fifth genders, all around the world. There's, there's a map online called the Global Gender Customs Map or something. It shows all of the different unique um, non-male, non-female genders around the world. So, I was curious because you mentioned in the book, Roanoke being still pretty segregated. How did that kind of racial configuration of Roanoke factor into finding people to talk to and also your your approach to those interviews and how did that kind of compare to talking to white folks or folks of other racial backgrounds? Yeah, it has a huge impact. 
One of the things I really try to get across in the book, and particularly in my chapter called The Whiteness of Queerness, is to first make clear that LGBTQ histories have long been informed by white supremacy. It's kind of the unspoken um, thing that people don't want to talk about. It's actually true all over the country. It's not just a Southern thing, but certainly in the South, because of the legacies of slavery, the legacies of Jim Crow segregation, it's even more apparent. You know, so for example, here in Roanoke, we have railroad tracks that cut through the city. And it's just like, you know, people say, you live on this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks. The racial segregation in Roanoke during the Jim Crow era was the black population lived largely on one side of the railroad tracks, the white population lived on the other. And it's amazing, perhaps upsetting to note that in 2022, that's really still the racial geography of the city. It hasn't shifted that much. Most neighborhoods are still highly segregated, including the gay neighborhood. So one of the things I point out is that a gay, a neighborhood that developed as early as the 1960s, 1970s here, which is kind of remarkable because usually we just hear about gay neighborhoods in big cities like New York or San Francisco. But the fact that there was a gay enclave here is interesting. But then when we realize that it developed in an all-white segregated neighborhood before integration, and that it still is like super majority white today, makes you wonder, well, if you were LGBTQ, but you were not white, were you welcome there? Did you feel welcome? Did you, were you, do you have a sense of belonging in those spaces? This is true of the early gay bars. They were also segregationist, et cetera. So what happens is that we end up in a place here. When I moved here in 2015, I looked around at the landscape of the LGBTQ community. We have one gay bar that's left, uh, one explicitly gay bar. Uh, it's run by a uh, white gay man is sort of the leader. The community center at the time was run by a bunch of white gay men. And still their president is a white gay man. The explicitly gay church here at the time, their pastor was a white gay man. Some of this shifts sometimes and then shifts back, but hasn't fundamentally shifted, I think, structurally. And so what I started to think about was that often LGBTQ spaces are just white, unthinkingly white, because there's a racial blindness, a racial myopia, where folks are not thinking about the fact of how racial dominance is playing into that space, or how racial dominance is playing into the way we tell stories about LGBTQ belonging. I've had white queer elders tell us early in this project, oh, there, there is no black LGBTQ history, you're not going to find those stories. Of course we have. So, you know, the the path to changing that narrative has been complex and bumpy. And in that chapter, I talk about a lot of mistakes that our predominantly white project has done along the way to try to change that narrative. But where we're at today, uh, which I think is exciting, is that some of the folks who have been involved in our history work have gone on to found the first explicitly Black LGBTQ organization in Roanoke. Uh, so they've been around for a couple of years now. This week, earlier this week, we did a Black History Month event about Black LGBTQ history. And we've done now about 25% of all of our interviews. So over a dozen interviews have been with Black LGBTQ people from our wide diversity of backgrounds, genders, sexualities, rural, urban, etc. So we are slowly working together to push back on the kind of whiteness of queerness, as I say. But in, a, in, in, these, in our American communities that are so highly racially segregated and live with those legacies, uh, this is the work of decades uh, rather than years. So we just have to keep chugging along. Dr. Rosenthal did a really great job, I think, of discussing these issues of the whiteness of queerness. And it got me thinking about how I, I'm on the board of the LGBTQ club at my school, and I do often see a very white crowd showing up to our events. And part of that is the demographics of my school. I go to an Ivy League school, which is historically, and even now, predominantly white. But I think as 
LGBTQ communities, we have a really amazing opportunity to build solidarity networks between students of color and LGBTQ students. And and Dr. Rosenthal's comments are going to really help me, I think, to think about ways of building those networks and hopefully creating long-lasting bonds and solidarities and also to make existing LGBTQ spaces more welcoming and enjoyable for everyone who shows up. Now back to the interview. Yeah, it's a work in progress, I guess. You talked a bit about making mistakes and then learning from those. Can you talk a bit more about that and how you kind of learned about those mistakes and then learned from them and and worked towards doing better? Yeah, absolutely. So when we started this project, I mean, at the founding meeting, there were a few people of color, but it was mostly white people. And then soon it became all white as those early people of color who were involved bowed out. You know, they weren't engaged with what we were doing, perhaps because they didn't see themselves represented in the in the output, or they they felt their voices weren't being heard. So, you know, that first year of the project is like all white LGBTQ people. And there were meetings where I write I write about this in the book, you know, meetings where we would talk about that issue, but people would just throw their hands up in the air and say, Well, I don't know any black LGBTQ people, so you know, let's just keep doing what we're doing, kind of thing. And then in the second year, we had black queer people call us out, basically, you know, to say like what's up, what's going on with this project? You've been around for a year, you've done interviews, you're collecting archives, you're telling stories about LGBTQ history, and you haven't ever reached out to the Black community. And that's how I start that chapter, talking about my meeting with my friend Garland about this. Uh, he was he was upset about it, as he should have been. And so together we started to brainstorm you know, Garland was sort of the first black elder to get involved in the project. He's like, uh, let me call up some people. So we started to gather more people. And, you know, the key aspect of the work is asking people who participate, what do you want this to do? What do you want to get out of this? What What is the motivation for this? Rather than me saying to them, give me your story and then bye, right? And I try not to have that relationship with people but to find out what can I do to help you. So, you know, there was one black gay male elder who said, you know, I want to be profiled in the local newspaper. I was like, I don't think I have the power to do that, but we eventually did get him profiled in the paper. So I try to be, I'm a woman of my word, and I try to, I try to stand by the principle of if people are telling us their stories, giving us their cherished memories, uh, we should give something back in return. And that's meant supporting this Black queer organization, supporting people's personal wishes of what they need. Sometimes it means paying people. We've talked a lot about how we should raise funds to maybe give money to Black queer people who are involved, what that looks like as a kind of reparations um, for the white supremacy of LGBTQ history. But the mistakes we've made, yeah, it, we did an event that I talk a lot about in the book where as white people, we put on this prominent African-American LGBTQ history event uh, where we invited Black queer people to come and tell their stories. And only two people came, and these two Black gay men, and they both just like chewed us out during the, you know, we didn't, the event didn't even happen, but they just kind of showed up and said, what the hell is this, you know? And said, so you're going about this all wrong, the way that you've done this, you know? You should be, building the networks first, building the friendships, going over and having dinner with people, having parties, building relationships. And then through that, together or cultivating Black leadership who themselves would put on the events. And we were kind of doing it clinically as if I could just cold call someone I don't know and say, you should show up to this thing, you know? So we've learned a lot from that. And I'm glad to say that we some of those some of those older black gay men are some of my dear dear friends now. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, 
establishing the trust first and then giving the stage over. And, and also speaking of relationships, you know, you mentioned falling in love during the course of this process. <laughs> and what was that like? I mean, also just like working with the person that you're led in love with and the whole right. thing. It's nice to see it cemented by a book. Yeah, that was an interesting process to think about. How do I talk about my friends and lovers in the book? That's a kind of memoirish aspect. Of course, I talked to them about it. I was like, are you okay with this? They were okay with it. So that's great that they let me tell the stories. But the reason I wanted to tell the stories was not just as a personal memoir, but because I think that it helps to show how, like I said before, that queer history can really shape our lives. This was my first really significant long-term gay relationship as, as a woman with another woman at the time, at least. Our identities have continued to shift around. And we met through doing the work. So yeah, I, I talk about in the book how very early on when we started dating, we wrote up this list of rules for dating. And on the list was like, history, history project events don't count as dates to try to make sure we had a life that was outside of this and that we weren't just doing the queer history activism as our relationship. But we, we developed and learned and did the walking tours together. We led the bar crawl together uh, several times. They were at the forefront of a lot of the arts stuff that I talk about at the end of the book about creating zines, uh, working with queer youth, helping develop our interactive theater program that we do with with queer youth. So it was an interesting process of years of being in a relationship for years as we are doing queer history work together as activists for years, as we're learning more about the past, a past that had shaped me so that I was transitioning throughout the whole relationship. I had started taking hormones and was like medically transitioning. And they were also thinking about their gender and sexuality during that process, which was also transforming. So it's, it was interesting, you know, and I think it, it comes, some of the complexity of that comes through the most in my chapter about lesbian histories, because RM and I, my ex and I, we were really striving, I think, to be a lesbian couple, but we were never really fully like two women in terms of our fluid genders. And so in that chapter, I talk about, you know, what does that look like to, be inspired by lesbian history, to seek lesbian community, to work together with other women, and yet to not quite be women, in, in at least at that time, in how we were thinking about, how I was thinking about myself and how we were thinking about ourselves. So yeah, so the relationship is really an interesting lens to, to look at this. Yeah, that is very interesting. You mentioned earlier about digital spaces not really being enough to create community. You have a whole chapter on digital spaces. So how did that kind of factor into your research? Yeah, I think that that was a chapter that I wasn't sure about writing, maybe at first, but realized that we all had a lot of thoughts about the internet, basically. It kept coming up in conversation. And you'll see this online or in media when people talk about why gay bars are closing, why gay neighborhoods are disappearing, why gay bookstores have largely disappeared from the landscape of, of the US. And people are always blaming the internet. It, it, I see that narrative over and over again, and we talked about it a lot in the course of our project. And the argument is that, you know, people can go on Grindr now or other gay dating apps to meet. And so they don't have to go to a bar to meet up or they don't have to meet up in some of the public spaces where men met up to, to have sexual encounters, all of which are kind of erased from how people move through space now. The gay bookstores have disappeared because we have Amazon. And, you know, the bookstores also, a big part of the bookstores was specifically LGBTQ pornography. And that's, I mean, the internet is a huge venue for that now. People don't need to walk into a sex store to find what they're looking for. So the argument is quite compelling, I think, that our landscape of our cities and communities has been fundamentally changed. These spaces have closed down. They've, they've, we just don't have these kind of 
sexual spaces anymore because of the internet. But, you know, I, I, I do argue against that. I think that that's true and, you know, it's true, but when people meet on Grindr, for example, they're not just chatting and that's it. They want to meet up. So still, they might meet up in someone's home, so that's a bit more private than the public spaces that used to exist. But if they start dating, they're going to go out to eat. They're, they're going to be gay people in public. And I was thinking about how we use social media. For a lot of young queer people today, they help learn about their identities and find other LGBTQ people online, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Tumblr, whatever it is. But the reality is that many of these social media sites are used to actually bring people out in space, right? That's the way activists use it. So when we want to get a bunch of queer people to gather downtown and do a bar crawl, we advertise it on Facebook, we advertise it on Instagram. And so I, I see the promise of the internet to actually animate physical space, public space, because Without it, I mean, before then, the gay communities here, they published newsletters, which is fine, and mailed them out to people. That was before the internet, you know? But now the internet is a tool to actually bring people together in physical space. So I think the internet is two-faced. It can have the effect to limit the way queer people occupy space in our communities, but I think it can also be used as a tool to reclaim and reanimate those spaces. So when I realized that, I thought, okay, let's historicize this. So I try to write about the way that LGBTQ people have used the internet over time since the 90s, how it's changed, and then the rest of that chapter talk about some of the really hands-on physical things that young people here have gotten excited about just to show, you know, against the argument that young LGBTQ people are all just on their phones today, to actually show that there really is a yearning to hold queer books, historic objects, to be in historical spaces, to make zines. So I think that the internet and the kind of physical world live in tandem together. Yes, I think we have to fight for the positives and also be wary just to like anything on the internet commodification being manipulated by algorithms or that's what we all have to do then different ways, uh, whatever our identities and so Queer history is often one of celebrating voices, uh, correcting erasures, as you say, erasures of cultural contributions. And as I think of your book, previous book, Beyond Hawaii, you show those indigenous erasures and how indigenous labor was a glue that held the Pacific world together. What inspired you to write that book? Yeah, so Beyond Hawaii began as my doctoral dissertation in grad school way back in the 2000s. And I initially became, I initially went to grad school for history, which was not my, my undergrad, my bachelor's degree is in music. I wanted to be a composer, which I still make music, but I do it for fun. But I initially got interested in history when I learned about environmental history. I mean, I was doing public history then too, but very different than the way I do it now, partly because I, I didn't know I was queer. And so I wasn't doing this kind of work. But I learned about environmental history in my early 20s because I was very much uh, the kind of person that was always hiking, camping, backpacking, exploring wilderness. And I started to do some reading about these spaces. This was in upstate New York um, where I grew up. And learning that, you know, the forest, even though it seems to be kind of untouched to the, to the untrained eye, actually has a history. There's very little forested land anywhere in the U.S. that has never been occupied and cut down and used in different ways. So I started to learn how to find the traces of that history in the landscape, whether it's old stone walls from when it used to be farms that's now a forest, stuff like that. So I decided then to go to grad school to, to learn more about how to do environmental history. And then when I was doing my graduate work in New York, I thought, okay, I've, I've spent my whole life in New York and it's, there are examples here I can write about, but I really wanted to challenge myself to use these theories to think globally. 
I had studied abroad in China in college for a semester and spoke Mandarin and I studied Mandarin throughout all four years of college. And I studied Chinese music when I was there because music was my interest. But when I was thinking about the environment and the, the global history, I thought, well, how can I use my Chinese language skills? And I had background in studying Chinese history. And so I was kind of looking at a map of the Pacific and I was like, okay, Hawaii is right between the U.S. and China. And there's a long, long history of Chinese uh, migration to Hawaii as workers. So that's how I started getting into the labor history and environmental history. And it was only when I started to go to Hawaii and do that work, because I thought I was going to write maybe about Chinese workers in Hawaii. Uh, but I started to learn more about the indigenous stories and kind of retooled the whole project to focus on Native Hawaiians. Although in Beyond Hawaii, the first and the last chapter is kind of bookends about China and Chinese people too, to show the synergy between China, Hawaii, and the U.S. as three different kind of historical powers at the time. So I ended up going to Hawaii maybe six or seven times during grad school. I spent over six months there total doing research and it was about 10 years of my life total working on that book. And, and I knew when the book came out that I was ready to do the living queer history too, because I had had the idea for this book for, for years there going through it, but I, I had to finish Beyond Hawaii. So I was really excited to, for that book to come out in 2018. And so, you know, it's interesting how they're both Give me about reclaiming spaces as well. Right. And in terms of, I always found this very difficult, even though I've lived most of my life in Europe now, but I was born in America. And, you know, any of us who lived on, whether you want to call it occupied land, I mean, some people say it's occupied land, or it's, it's very hard to come to terms with those histories when one has displaced entire populations. Right. Yeah, and we, you know what I'll say about that is what I've said about about Beyond Hawaii since it came out. Every every time that I have talked to people about it, is that I had and have deep reservations as like a white New Yorker doing that work. And if I could go back in time, I would have done it differently. You know, a lot of the things I've learned doing LGBTQ history as somebody who's in that community have reshaped how I think then about the previous work I did as someone who is an outsider. And I think what I've learned from Living Queer History, the second book, is that I really value, I have an ethical value that I really highly place on letting people tell their own story, right? Using their own words. So I think, um, you know, my, my advice to other scholars and authors is not that we can't write, we can't, you know, research and write about people unlike ourselves, because you know, that's a, a huge part of being kind of global citizens is learning about the world. We can't contain ourselves just to our own identities. That won't create a better world. But when we do work with communities unlike ourselves, we really should start from a point of building relationships. And I did that at the end kind of of my process with Beyond Hawaii. As I got nearer and nearer to the book came in, coming out, I was building relationships with Native Hawaiian scholars. I didn't do that at the beginning. And if I could go back in time, I would have started by talking with Native Hawaiian scholars about the project and gotten their advice from the get-go. Yes. Well, sometimes it's difficult, although I don't know to what extent uh, online collaborations, um, but sometimes when you have to make the journeys, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. The technology is closing those gaps, as you said, about digital spaces. Right. Um, you've made us you know, reflect really a, a lot about the need for making spaces for all voices and honoring those contributions to society and the kind of world we want to live in, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. So as you think about the future, education, queer history, you know, what are your hopes? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, I think, you know, locally, first of all, here in Roanoke, I bought a house here recently and I'm putting down roots here. Um, so it's been, after I kind of finished writing Living Queer History, but before it came out, I made I made some decisions to really stay here and um, that Roanoke is gonna be my home. 
we're continuing to do the history project work. So we're still collecting interviews and we're still planning events, as I've mentioned. So I'm excited to see where that goes. I don't know where it will go. I'm excited when young queer people get involved and have ideas. And, and I'm like, run with them, run with your ideas, you know, we'll support you. So I'm excited to think about spending the next few decades here. It's a kind of long view that I've not had through much of my 20s and 30s in life as I've moved around the world. So for me, the future is about a commitment to place, a commitment to community, continuing to do the work of, of lifting up each other and uncovering new voices always that have been left out. I think on a broader scale, you know, I do have so much hope for education because I'm a college professor. And I think if I can't wake up and feel hopeful about what we're doing in, in higher education, then, you know, it would be very hard for me to do my job. I think that there are a lot of challenges facing education for sure. It's expensive, it's unequal in terms of people's access and so on. But, you know, I'm talking to you today from my office. It's nice to finally be back in person after years of teaching online because of COVID. And I'm so excited to be back in the classroom with young people who are really challenging what they think they know about everything. Uh, I think that that's the power of education is to say, everything you think you know may not be correct. Let's kind of destabilize your mind and give you new tools for thinking. And then you get to put it back together. You know, ultimately each person can decide what they believe in, what they stand for, what kind of life they wanna live in the world. My job as a professor is to give them the tools to do that. Yes, that's really all our goals, I think. That's what education can be. So thank you, Dr. G. Samantha Rosenthal, for your insights into living queer history, sharing these important stories, as well as shining a light on Indigenous experiences and helping us come to a place of greater compassion, inclusion, and understanding. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Bela Unger with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Bela Unger. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Rouse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.